0: I promised you last week. I gave you a real brief thematic overlook of the book of of Micah, and the main thing I did last week was read it to you. That was my my main objective was just to read you the book in its entirety, seven chapters. Uh, oh, it took us about twenty minutes or so, maybe twenty two minutes, and I wanted to kind of give you uh the 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 reasoning behind why a group of college students on Friday nights uh, who have plenty of, uh, you know, poli-sci and psychobio and CS to study should take a break from their busy academic pursuits on Zoom and take in an ancient prophecy. So the idea of studying Micah is maybe a little bit... Uh, Alien to some of you because it's one of those, you know, random, seemingly random minor prophets. The Twelve, they're called. You know Jonah because of his famous fish story. Uh, Nahum, not so much. Hosea, you know, is is famous because, you know, he had a bad wife. And, uh, you know, the list goes on. Amos, uh, etc. You know the the bigger prophets. Uh, Isaiah, for example, uh, Jeremiah and just their mere volume you know should should draw you in so what I tried to do last week is try to show you the immediate relevancy without really explaining it or approving it to you just just promising you you know you're going to get you're going to get a, a glimpse of God here that's uh, on par with some of the greatest visions of God in all the Bible you're going to get a deeper understanding of the judgment of God his holiness and his his jurisprudence his his righteous judgment of, of all the earth. That, that's a huge theme. And you're also going to understand a, a different level of hope because along with that judgment comes an incredible fusion of hope for God's people. And so that was the idea last week. I hope you've been able to look at the book of Micah in your own time, uh, find it in your Bible at least, and know that that there is such a thing as, as the book of Micah. I told you tonight what we do is I, I geek out, but with parameters, I want to give you a little bit of a a background study of the book of Micah, and and I could go deep into Assyrian history, and I'm not going to do that uh, because I don't want you to leave uh, before we're done. So I want to invite you to open your Bible to to Micah, uh, and and I think there is where we will find uh, chapter 1, verse 1, our text for tonight. Micah. If you go to Nahum, you've gone too far. If you're in Jonah, you're getting warm and you'll find the book of Micah. And our text for tonight is Micah chapter one, verse one. That's all we'll cover tonight just by way of giving you an understanding of the text, you know, a way to kind of walk you into it. So Micah one, verse one, the word Of the Lord or Yahweh in the in the Hebrew, the word of Yahweh, which came to Micah of Moreshets in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word. Romeo, Romeo. Not wherefore art thou? Romeo Langsford, you know him? He's an NBA player. He's a bench player, a role player for the Boston Celtics, Romeo. But you wouldn't know that because I said Romeo, Romeo, and you thought I was talking about the guy from Fair Verona, right? Or maybe I was talking about Romeo, the the Italian automotive manufacturer, Alpha Romeo, and and I just mispronounced it. Uh, Maybe that's the Romeo you thought, I was talking about. Uh, Wikipedia calls it, I think, disambiguation or something like that. It's the different kinds of things that you're looking up. There's other versions of it. So maybe I'm talking about a rapper named Romeo. Maybe I'm talking about um, the nickname of Adita Dev. Uh, he lived from 1988 to 2012. Anybody know who that is? He's an Indian bodybuilder, entertainer, and dancer. And he's known as the world's smallest bodybuilder. He was also known as Romeo. So there's a lot of Romeos out there. And you don't know which Romeo I'm talking about until I tell you it's not Romeo, Colorado or Romeo, Michigan or Romeo, Florida or Romeo Island in Antarctica or the lunar crater called Romeo. Uh, but the, it's the one, you know, that warms the bench for the Celtics, Romeo Langford. Uh, but to know that, you've got to know who I'm talking about. you to know who they are, where they live, what time period we're talking about. And the same is true of Micah. The book of Micah is not a well-known book. It's small, uh, only seven chapters long. It's buried among the minor prophets. And most people take that to mean insignificant rather than small in stature, like the great Indian bodybuilder. So... The book of Micah is a book that I think, like so much of the Old Testament, suffers neglect. And what I'd like you to do tonight is, is just hear me out, and and maybe I'll try to set the scene for what this 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 prophet was about, because his message was a message of incredible significance for the people he first prophesied to, but because it's inspired by God, there's a timelessness to it that brings a relevancy to us because his world, though so far distant from ours, is not unlike ours. And I want to show you how that is. Also, the contemporaneity of this book isn't just that God's word is timeless. It's that some of the things that Micah said are still future even for us. Some of the judgment on the nations, some of the promises and fulfillments that he makes about that New Davidic king will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, we're far ahead of his time, behind our time. But some of the implications that Micah talks about in his rulership are beyond even our own time. So the the importance and relevancy of understanding who is this guy Micah that we're talking about? What is what is he what is he saying to his people? And I think the best way to figure that out is by looking at chapter one, verse one of the book of Micah. And I want to start by looking at the man, the man Micah. Okay, we're going to do a two-part outline tonight: the man and the message. Okay, the man and the message. The man is Micah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of do some some work over here for you that shows you uh, kind of what this is all about. To understand Micah, you've got to understand where he was from, and. What he says in chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morasheth is giving us more information than maybe you realize uh, every I could have got a map from the Internet, but I, I prefer to draw Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm a very gifted artist. You may know this about me. But whenever you draw Israel, you draw a tiny puddle up here. You draw a line like this and you draw a big puddle down here. That is Israel. OK, Mediterranean seas over here. And over here is the big bad uh, Assyrians. These are the Assyrians. See, that's really good drawing. And their army is going to come from the east. Over here is guys that have a big bad pike. They're called Babylon. Um, they're also coming from the east. And these are the, the troubles of this man's time. He lived in Israel, puddle, line, puddle. And... He lived at a time where, you know, I'm already not happy with my artwork here because the coast of Israel is actually inverse that way. Okay, I feel a lot better. I I know that mattered to you. Northern Israel, where there's mountains up here, you know that. There's a little snow on them. Hebron, they call it. So uh, whenever you're in the north, you're talking about Israel. Whenever you're in the south, you're talking about something called Judah. And this is important because uh, Micah talks about Israel and he talks about Judah. And they're not necessarily synonymous, though Israel sometimes is a way of talking about all of God's people. And the same with Judah. They were distinct after the reign of Solomon, because remember, it's not hard to remember the first three kings of Israel, Saul, who was a mess, David, who was God's chosen one, his son Solomon, who pooched it badly. So after Solomon, the kingdom was divided as part of God's judgment on Uh, David and on uh, his his lineage. And so there's there's a dividing line here. It's not an actual line. It's just the difference between the north and the south. The capital of Judah was anyone Sunday school? I'll start to write it and you'll get it. Jerusalem. Yeah, you got it. Good. And the capital of Israel was there's a lady at the well. Remember her? Yeah, Samaria. And That was really a a name and title that was influenced by the Assyrians when they would come and bash it out completely in 722 B.C. I know this is making some of you who are OCD a little bit nervous because of my messiness, but this is how my mind works. Uh, What I want you to get is I want you to get that this guy was not like uh, Isaiah, big time Isaiah, who ministered in capital cities. Who walked among the throne room of, of Hezekiah. This was Micah from Morisheth. You want to go to Morisheth, you got to go to, you got to go to this little village. It's just this dinky little village down here. Uh, it's, it's in the, the plains, kind of the pasture land. And this is where you'd find Morisheth. Um, that is 25 miles south and uh, a little bit west of Jerusalem. It's a, a place of insignificance. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes it's called Morisheth Gath. Uh, remember, uh, there was somebody famous in the Bible from a place called Gath. His name was uh, the tall guy in the Bible, the the Philistine. Yeah, yeah, it was that guy. So uh, when you think about Goliath, he was from Gath. There was some Philistine stuff. So it's probably a place close to Gath, uh, a village called Moraseth, And that's where Micah was from. It's likely that Micah was a farmer because that's what everyone was. In Morissette. I would even go so far to say that he was involved in the procuring of sheep as part of his agricultural endeavors because there are so many lambs and sheep and uh, flock metaphors in his prophecy that it's likely that he had some familiarity with with sheeping, as they call it in the business. Um, Southern Judah is the place of his his, uh, you know, it's where his Instagram location would have, would have been marked, but he didn't uh, restrict the prophecy to Jerusalem or to Judah or to Israel or to Samaria. It was inclusive of all of those things. His particular focus was Judah, but because Israel and Samaria would fall in his lifetime, it was seeming maybe a more pressing relevance to talk to Judah so that they might avoid the fate of the Assyrians coming to smash them down. And that would be in vain because Assyria would, would conquer Jerusalem again. But in Micah's lifetime, he would be one who would hold his ground. His ministry would make good progress for the people of God. There would be at least intermittent repentance. There would be at least some changes. And as you can see, he lived in a time of, of change. Of various kingship, he had a long ministry, potentially as long as sixty years, because of the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, it might be helpful to show you, not to draw it, but to show you. Um, I think right here, this is this is a this is a tell in Israel. A tell is is a way to find out if the person you're playing poker with is lying to you. Um, yeah, it's a hill. So it's a, uh, it's a hill and it's in Israel and it's, it's around that same place. Most scholars think this is Moresheth Gath. And I show you that to help you understand that when we study the Bible, we're talking about a place of, of reality, of history. This isn't mythology. This is an actual place, uh, near where the Assyrians conquered, uh, the northern kingdom. They found a pit with, uh, 1500 bodies, skeletons in it. And parts of pigs and the remnant of war. It was probably a garbage dump and where they threw all their victims, many of them headless. So the Assyrians made an impact on this land and that was the the people that he was warning them about. This was his hometown. This was his farmland. Uh, modern Israel Department of Antiquities is currently, I read a little headline about this, uh, angry with people for driving four-wheelers over Moresheth Gath. That's what all that That line is about Todd Boland from Masters University took this picture out of an airplane in Israel. He caught the window. I mean, the wing and the tire there. It's kind of cool. But uh, there's four wheeling problems uh, in that town. Now, different problems when uh, our guy Micah was there. But thinking about the the kingship issue, those three kings that were identified are all kings of Judah. You, You see them on this list in verse one. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, this column on the left is kings of Judah. This column on the right is kings of Israel. And these simultaneous reigns kind of give you an idea of when Micah was doing his work. Micah uh, would have lived in the times of prophet Isaiah, of the prophet uh, Nahum. And those were his contemporaries. He probably never mingled with them since he was a farm boy and not rolling with the big shots like Isaiah was. But his prophecy would have been heard far and wide among the people. And when we think about Micah, we're thinking about his his times. The man was a man of a farm community. He was a time of tremendous political change and danger, and he was... Speaking to the relevancy of this time, the the kind of the key words in Micah's prophecy that give you a glimpse of who he was is Micah three eight. Uh, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of Yahweh with justice and might to declare to Jacob uh, and his trans uh, to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You know, it's this. It's this kind of. Yeah, It's this kind of prophecy, this strong, powerful word that Micah would have spoken that helps us understand the, the, the person that he was. A farm boy, small town character transformed into this spokesman from God. And you gotta admire the providence that's functioning in his life. Like most of you, Micah didn't choose his name. Uh his name uh, Mica, it's something like this in Hebrew. Micah, Micah, and that's a yod. It means hand. And that's some that's some really good Paleo Hebrew scriptures, So you know that's that's it. Uh, Micah means who is. It's a shortened form, a four letter form uh, of a longer name, Makaya which would mean who is like Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. His name that his parents gave him was a statement of faith. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And that name frames this prophecy. Verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you flip to the end of the book of Micah, you see his name again. This time not as a name, a four-letter name, but this time as the full spelled-out version, who is like a God to you, chapter 7, verse 18. It's that word Micah again. And his name really does become so crucial and central to the point of this prophecy. The people of God will see that their responsibility was to reflect the character of their God. That's always the people's responsibility. That's your responsibility to be like Christ, to follow after God, to emulate him. That was always the people's responsibility. But Micah's people had forgotten what God is like. They had worshiped idols. They had gone after the high places. And now God, in the next verses, two through eight or so, rises up and comes down from heaven to earth to witness against them in an act and speech of judgment. Micah is showing them who their God is. He's reminding them who is like their God, who is like their God in judgment. And eventually he'll give them hope by reminding them who is like their God when it comes to grace, to mercy, to compassion. And so Micah gives to us a very scant biography. All of this just coming from uh, the time in which Micah lived. The only thing that else would be worth mentioning is to give you a little bit of Assyria. I mean, maybe you're scared of Russia, or maybe you know there's a global superpower in your day that intimidates you. In Micah's day, that would have been the people of uh, the Neo Assyrian Empire. The Neo Assyrian Empire, uh, we're talking about. Um, characters that you've heard of, like maybe you've heard of them in a world history class, uh, Tiglath-Pileser uh, the Third. Uh, th- those kind of people, and we have their stellas that we can see what they looked like. You know, at least what they wanted artists to show them what they looked like. And these were these leaders from Assyria. Several different Assyrian uh, bad boys that were a threat to the people of God. These massive international superpowers are really the feature of Second Kings, of the middle section in the book of Isaiah, of the dramatic story of Hezekiah, which would have been kind of towards the end of Micah's ministry. So Assyria features very heavily into this book, and, and you'll hear him talk about Assyria, You'll hear him talk about the threat and danger of invasion and the destruction of uh, the people of God, the captivity of the people of God. Uh, And this courageous prophet talks in the face of this massive looming juggernaut that is the Assyrian army, likely a reference to them in in chapter one, verse eight, uh, the jackals, the ostriches, He, he uses poetry to describe who they were. But it's these Assyrians that Micah's oracles are warning the people about. The Assyrians would be used by God to judge his people. And it's really an amazing thing to think about how something as ancient and seemingly dry as Assyrian history had a relevancy to God's plan. The main Assyrian king who is who is right at the door, knocking threatening was that character Tiglath-Pileser III in the Bible 2 Kings 15 he's called Pol, Pul P U L and when he enters into the the Levant the area of Israel and Judah he smashes army after army of little nation states demanding tribute taking them into subjugation he he was the big bad bloodthirsty ruler of his day. He basically conquered, he and his predecessors, the entirety of the known world. This was a massive threat. He would exact tribute from people, and then he would uh, disrupt their society so significantly by taking their best and brightest of society and hauling them back in captivity uh, to be his slaves, to be his subjects, to bring them into a place of unfamiliarity. It was impossible for them to rebel, being 500 miles away from their homeland. And now they were a people who were subjugated. And those who remained behind lacked all their leadership, their, their skilled working class. Those are, are all that was left behind. And so he had this way of conquering that was absolutely terrifying and fatal and vengeful and bloody. The one who followed him uh, was uh, Sargon the Second, I believe. I think there's one more king that I'm forgetting his name, but Sargon the Second is the one who finished the job, 722 BC. All of this surrounding the time of kings like of Uzziah, of Hezekiah, of of Isaiah's prophecies in the north, and here Micah is calling to the the people of the South mainly, this man from a little farming village 25 miles from the center of Jerusalem, uh, surrounded by this massive worldwide geopolitical nightmare, a volatile situation. And he's going to minister in the time of three kings. He's going to give three different oracles in this prophecy. And and I think it'd be helpful for you to see that as well, uh, just to give you kind of an idea of how this thing is is chopped up. Let me give you a fresh, fresh page, fresh page. I don't know how to do a fresh page. So I'll just zoom in right there. So (laughs) make that a little littler. Okay, cool. So I think this will help you. And you can maybe jot this down for your own study to see if this got it. I don't know what you're asking me, but I got it. Apple trying to take over the world. Okay, so here it is. Apple stock went way down today. Sorry, that was, that was too fast. the first time I've said that to myself. Today. Okay, so here it is. Let me let me show you the structure of this book. And and I think if you've read Micah, you're like, yeesh, this is a bowl of spaghetti. This is a mess. This is all tangled up. It jumps from here to there. And scholars would agree with you. The problem is, as I showed you last week, there is a key word, I think, that divides this prophecy, that word here, and that's the division that will follow in our study. So if I give you this little outline, I think it'll help you follow where we're at in this thing, how Micah organized his his oracles or, or how God presented them. And it was likely presented over the course of his ministry over decades, you know, piecemeal, Different prophecies. This is reflective of his ministry. It's not everything he ever said. He must have said far more than this. Uh, but wa- watch like this. Let's try to do it like this. Uh, so the first section we'll call it A is stop it is one uh, two through two thirteen, and then you can break that down a little bit further and look at one two to twenty four. And that follows a pattern. It's all about judgment. If you just glance your eyes down on the page, you can see what it's saying in that section. God is treading the high places of the earth. The mountains melt under his feet. Idols are being smashed. It's obviously an oracle or a divine speech of judgment. After that section, or this this A section is broken down into uh, this, into, uh, let's do two. One, two, two 2 to 2.11, that's to 2.11. I'm sorry, I I didn't read my own writing. Uh, 2.12 to 2.13, this is a section. If you look at it with me, uh, it says in it, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out past through the gate and go by it. So their king goes on before them. And the Lord at their head. So that's not a scary passage, right? That's a nice passage. So every single one of these oracles has a cycle of judgment and then a cycle of, you could call it hope or you could call it grace. And so there's this, this section of, of hope and grace. Next, you have three one. Again, starting with that word here, here. And that goes all the way to five fifteen. And that uh, consists of three. One through 12, which is all about judgment. If you look over that, here now, O heads of Jacob uh, and the rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones? You get the vibe of that? It's definitely judgment. It's definitely a, a word of warning, a, a word of, of condemnation onto the leadership of Israel. And then from there, we see this pattern again break open, 4. one to 5.15. And I think it's safe to categorize that as hope. So 4. one says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established. As the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, and he may teach us about his ways, and may we may walk in his path. So obviously those are those are hopeful words. Those are words of grace, words of, of promise. And and that goes for an entire section there. And then the book concludes with this same cycle of oracles of of judgment and oracles of hope, 6-1 to 7-20. And then we have in 6-1 to 7-7, a word of judgment. And just so you know, I'm not making stuff up. Uh, look at 6-1, starting with that word here. Now what Yahweh is saying, arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills listen to your voice. This is that courtroom language we'll see in this book where God is both judge and and jury and witness against the people of of Israel and of Judah and against the way they've mistreated, especially the poor among them. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, verse 2 of chapter 6 and you enduring foundations of the earth because Yahweh has a case against his people, even with Israel, he'll dispute. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent to you, da-da-da-da-da. And then it, it goes on to say, uh, shall I present my firstborn for rebellious acts? On and on. So it's a very shocking and indicting section. And then the book will conclude in what I think is the most glorious passage in the entire Old Testament. And that goes from 7, 3 to verse 20. And it's pure hope and pure grace. I read it for you last time, and I showed you the very end of the book of Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love He will have compassion on us. Now check this, verse 19 of chapter seven is a perfect mirroring conclusion from the opening words of this prophecy. In chapter one, verse three, verse four, it says the mountains will melt under him. In verse three, it says he'll come down and tread on the high places of the earth. That's destroying their false worship with stomps of his divine feet. But at the end of the book, he says, He will again have compassion on us, verse 19. He will tread, same word, our iniquities underfoot and cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. This awesome message, and this is where we can start to think about not just the man, but his message. His message is a message of judgment and hope. And that's a message all of us need to hear. We have to hear judgment in order for us to understand how captivating hope can be if we don't understand the depth of our sin and the righteous judgment that we deserve from God, then we won't understand how wonderful it is to be forgiven, to have all of our sins tread under God's feet, completely removed and and cast into the sea. That's the awesome part of hope. And if you don't get judgment, you can't get hope. And so here is Micah, this small town prophet who has... Really no credentials to mention of himself. And I love that about Micah. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't tell you what a big deal he is or or where he went to school or why he's a significant prophet and and should be listened to. Instead, he says he's from Moresheth. He's obviously some kind of farmer or shepherd. He lives in this incredibly tumultuous time. But the point that he has to say is that he has a message of judgment and hope and it's a message that's not his message. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 again. The word of Yahweh, which came to Micah. And then look at the final words of verse 1. Which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. There's a bunch of Hebrew words for the word saw. It's weird for a language with that few of words to have that many words for saw. But it does. And this is one of those words that is used almost exclusively of visions. The point is, is the word of the Lord came to Micah, that Micah saw something otherworldly. And his description of God coming down is a vision, a prophetic vision, an oracle from God, a message from God, a word from God himself. And to think about how messed up everything was, in Judah and in Israel, and how undeserving the people were, and how foreboding these these enemies were that that were about to surround them. All of that should make us remember what a gift it is to have a word from God. That's what's amazing about this prophecy, is that Micah is bringing something not of his own imagination, but he's bringing something powerful and potent, something Uh, so timely and so important. And I think it should cultivate in our hearts a, a gratitude for every time we get to hear the word of God. Micah spoke to people who didn't deserve to hear God's word. He spoke to people who didn't obey God's word, but the word of God is always a grace. The speech of God, the fact that God didn't remain silent is proof to us that God cares. One of the most pitiful things I've ever read when I was studying the book of Deuteronomy is a, a pagan poem from uh, an, one of the ancient Near Eastern people. I think it was an Assyrian poem. And it was, they were polytheistic. And the, the thing goes on for four or five pages as the person just begs to, to his God, saying, to the God that I do not know and I do not know what this God wants and I do not know and, and this God that I do not know and I do not know how to satisfy him and I do not know and I do not know and I do not know. That is the folly of idolatry. And here we have Micah who who has seen and heard from God. Micah who who is this humble prophet whose strength isn't from himself or from his rhetoric or from his sheep raising skills but it's because he's been filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare the word of the Lord and to show them what he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The word of God then and the word of God now is always a grace. It's always evidence of the kindness of Yahweh. Where would you be without the word of God? What would you do apart from the word of God? In what ways would you stumble around your life and wonder if you were pleasing him or wonder if you were truly forgiven? Apart from the word of God, we are lost and blind and God reveals himself and that is an act of grace. Calvin says this so well in his introduction to Micah in his commentary from the 17th century. He says, Thus, what took Micah some 38 to 40 years to preach, we can read within an hour. How immense our ingratitude then, if seeing that Micah labored all his life to exhort the people of his era, and that God has so graciously provided such a brief summary of his teachings for us, we should fail to esteem them or neglect to cast our eyes upon them. How we can... Be so interested in the outcome of an election. How we can be so interested in the lives of a celebrity. How we can be so interested in in The Mandalorian, Season 2, Episode 9. And leave our Bibles quietly by our bedside. Not recognizing the richness, the gift, and the profound gratitude we ought to have for the God who speaks. And that's why we study in Micah. That's what this comes down to. Last week and this week, to know that Micah is going to show us that there is no one like God, no one in His judgment, and no one in His grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for reminding us that this is a real experience that Micah had, a a real life full of trouble and toil and difficulty and fear and danger and uncertain times. God, how we need what Micah had, how we need to have confidence in your word so that we might face an unknown future, how we need To know about your judgment so that we can know about our preservation. We need to know about your judgment so we can know how how the way to peace would be found. We need to know about your judgment so we can know about your pardon. And so, Father, show us yourself through your word as we study this over this quarter. Help us to see that there is no one like you. Reveal yourself to us through your word. Use human instrument like you did before to produce in your people a a deep gratitude for the word that you've given us, for the truth about yourself, for the reminders of your judgment and your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.